I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Linda Carducci, and we're talking about the life and music of Robert Schumann, one of the great composers of the Romantic period in the 19th century. We talk about his music across the genres for which he wrote, how he had to choose between a career as a pianist or a composer, and how literature permeated his music. Plus, stay with us to the end to hear your reviews from Apple Podcasts. My first time hearing Robert Schumann's music, Linda, was in high school, and I heard his concert stuke for four horns and orchestra, and my mind was just blown. Did you ever see that Disney movie, Ratatouille? Yes. The Rat That Cooks? Mm -hmm. It was like that scene where he's giving this other rat, like, cheese and grapes, trying to convince him to not eat garbage, and he eats this, and it's like an explosion of fireworks and colors and sounds in his head. <laughs> that was the moment for me, hearing hearing Schumann in this piece. I don't know if you have a, a similar experience with your first listening. Not quite that, but when I was a, a piano student, my piano teacher gave me a—I can't remember what piece it was for solo piano. It was an, it was a, an, an easy work, but I remember being struck by how invigorating and energetic it was and vibrant and chordal, and I, I, was, I thought Schumann was wonderful. Oh, yeah. He grabs you by the collars and he just sometimes doesn't let go. Sometimes he's shaking you. Sometimes he's Mm -hmm. consoling you. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he is, you know, weaving a tail around you. So Schumann, he was born in 1810 in Zwickau. This is basically central Germany. Just a really quick summary of his life to bring us up to speed. His father, August, wanted Schumann to have more opportunities than he did. So by the time young Robert Schumann is born, August was a book publisher, an editor, and a writer very involved in literature. And he encouraged the young Schumann to read and study music, starting piano lessons at age seven, doing all these things that he wasn't able to do. So this made Schumann really well-read and knowledgeable in music, but also literature. He wanted him to have these opportunities. But his father dies when he's just 16 years old, and... After that uh, family, I think his mother included, from what I understand, they did not want him to then pursue the arts and and music. So they sent him to law school in Leipzig when he was 18. But of course, he gets to Leipzig and then he just decides, well, I'm just going to start studying music uh, with someone named Frederick Wieck. That last name might sound familiar and we'll explain why in, in a little bit. But a year later, he was sent to a different law school in Heidelberg. But in the following year and when he's 20 years old, the family finally relents. And he's able to return to Leipzig to really study music with Frederick Wieck. And Schumann said, my whole life has been a struggle between poetry and prose, or call it music and law. Those He wants to do music. The family wants him to do law. So when he goes back, two things happen when he goes to, to study music with Frederick Wieck. He meets Clara Wieck the daughter of his teacher, who would become a star pianist of the 19th century. And he also gets a hand injury that prevents him from pursuing a career as a pianist. It sounds like it may have been something like dystonia, which is something that affects musicians still today. It's very sad. Yes, um, that was quite a fateful event when Robert Schumann went to study piano with Frederick Wieck. That 
Yeah, that episode affected the rest of his life because mm-hmm. it is there that he became more and more involved in music, had the hand injury, as you say. Maybe it was self-imposed. Some people think it was self-imposed because of some sort of contraption he devised for his finger. But as you say, some people think it might be dystonia. But it was also there where he met Frederick Feig's daughter, and she was just a, a child at that at that time. Uh, but she was quite a pianist, and he thought of her as a child. And then when they grew up, he thought of her quite differently, and she affected his life the rest of his life. Oh, yes. And when he receives this injury and he's unable to play, he then starts his focus on on composition. And he's already a little bit later than most composers start. You think of Mozart writing an opera when he's like 11 years old or something. And now we've got Schumann. He's in his early 20s, and he's just getting into really studying composition seriously. And one of his early works, and this brings us to his music, I think the first 10 years, he basically only wrote for a piano and one of his early works, Papillon, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I think that this um, has its roots in what you were talking about earlier in his study of literature. When he was a teen, he was studying literature, poetry. He was very much taken with the poetry of Schiller and Goethe. And this started to create this um, innovative sort of mentality that he had that found its way into that one of that first pieces that you were talking about, Papillon, which evokes butterflies that were symbolizing dances at a masked ball. It was inspired by a novel. This is almost an example of early program music where we have papillon music depicting butterflies. He's already immediately combining literature heavily into his music, it Mm -hmm. sounds like. And when you're listening to this, you can already hear some defining characteristics. The phrasing of Schumann feels very naturally like, like breathing, as if the music is being sung, even if it's just played by a piano or a later work featuring a clarinet, for example. There's a lot more flexibility in the tempo, there's a lot more liberty the performer can have in the phrasing overall. And these are a lot of characteristics that seem kind of new. I don't hear this so much in Mozart and Haydn piano works or even Beethoven so much a few decades before. We're in a different time period, aren't we? We certainly are. We're now into the Romantic era. Now, maybe it wasn't called that immediately, but um, we're speaking of Romantic not with a small r, meaning love and sentiment evoking romance and love, but rather Romantic with a capital R, meaning an artistic period from the 19th century. This was a period of art uh, in which now Now the emphasis was on freedom, liberty of form, individual expression, emotion, uh, drama. And it was quite different from, as you say, John, the, the 18th century, because that was classicism. And classicism was based on structure. Usually classical music had a particular structure, a sonata form that we talk about that worked its way through many different forms of music. Mozart, Haydn, early Beethoven very much proponents of the sonata form of the 18th century. Beethoven, of course, a transitional figure because he was so creative, he sort of moved things away. But even if you listen to late uh, Haydn and Mozart, you could hear some of them moving away a little bit from the classicism. But all of a sudden, Robert Schumann starts writing and really bursts open what um, Beethoven, and to a certain extent, maybe Berlioz, was going for. The whole architecture has kind of been been broken down, mm-hmm. and it seems like everything gets a little bit richer. The harmony is richer. They can do more. Some things that were kind of foreboding are now acceptable. Dynamics are more extreme. There's more loud. There's more soft. There's more in-between. There's more contrast with that. It's kind of like instead of a simple dessert of just strawberries, now we're adding sugar. 
and <laughs> vanilla and like whipped cream, maybe a little nutmeg too. Oh, and yeah. we're getting this rich dessert that is more dramatic than than what was coming before. Absolutely. And along those lines, John, orchestration became bigger too. Um, instruments were evolving now. They were had had bigger sonorities than they had before. And also we're starting to see the rise of the virtuoso performer during the um, the Romantic era. Franz Liszt, of course, comes to mind. And we're explaining this because Schumann is, I mean, one of the defining composers of this Romantic period, kind of just it's just full gas all the way from from Beethoven and from before, just kind of going in this in this new direction. Papillon is already an early example. Another work that is quite extraordinary is also for the piano. He only wrote for the piano basically for like 10 years, and that's Carnival. Mm-hmm. One of the most famous and, and well-known of his works. Uh, this was a piece in which he is depicting uh, people at a masked ball, at, at a carnival during Lent in Venice. And all of these many characters figure into this. And Schumann so cleverly is able to depict characters, but also, you know, other things, Papillon, show up in Carnival. And so does this this League of David, which we see as a theme in some of his music. Would you like me to talk about the League of David a little bit? Sure. Okay, the League of David came out of uh, a journal that Robert Schumann founded at the age of 24 called the New Journal for Music. And he, in this, was reviewing music and talking about music, and he was creating in that a fictitious music society that he called the Davidsbundler, or the, the League of David. The League were made up of particular characters that, based on people that Schumann knew, each had a distinctive personality. And um, the society was named after the biblical King David, who fought the Philistines. And what Robert Schumann was doing with his League of David was fighting against the Philistines, the people who didn't understand art or that just liked superficiality in art. It feels like Schumann, if he was writing a book today, his books would be like 2,000 pages long. (laughs) They'd be very enjoyable and very rewarding, but he is extremely detailed in his thoughts. And you don't need to know these things exactly to enjoy the music, but it enriches it when you kind of get inside his mind a little bit. And he's able to do this because it sounds like with this carnival and these little moments of little kind of character pieces of these different people, he's able to do that because there's not this former structure that he has to use like composers before. Exactly. And so in Carnival, in addition to all of these people that are at this ball, they all come out at the end in the League of David to to march on the stage. By the way, you were talking about the distinction between this and the classical era, and I think it's important to talk about Felix Mendelssohn just very briefly. Yes. Mendelssohn was born one year earlier than Robert Schumann, and in fact, they were friends and colleagues, and they respected each other. But Mendelssohn was a little more of a classicist. The structure of his music was a little bit more of the classical era of Beethoven and Mozart and um, Haydn. Schumann, completely different approach. And it might be why Mendelssohn was maybe a bit more famous, especially immediately early on in his music, like symphonies, for example, gained a little more traction because he was not quite pushing as far forward as, as Schumann was. And another thing about this this carnival piece, I think there's a, it's a great example of how Schumann was able to just distill things down. In 1850, the Universal Journal of Music wrote, It has been related that Schumann, as a child, possessed rare taste and talent for portraying feelings and characteristic traits in melody. He could sketch the different dispositions of his intimate friends by certain figures and passages on the piano so exactly and comically 
that everyone burst into loud laughter at the similitude of the portrait. This is so fantastic because I feel like when you listen to Schumann, he gets right down to the bone of of what something is or the emotion immediately. And when they say comically, this is a great point because comedians have great perception or Mm -hmm. they're able to look at someone like if they're going to roast you (laughs) in seconds, they know exactly what's going to get to you. Yeah. And Schumann is able to look at someone or a character (laughs) and immediately know how in music I'm going to portray them. And it's very, very convincing. It sure is. You're talking about laughing because it's a wonderful, clever talent to have. Mm -hmm. He portrays Chopin in the carnival so brilliantly, but very concise, very short. But you would swear it's Beethoven. It's um, Chopin, excuse me. And he does the same thing with, with Paganini. It's a fantastic work, and we'll have links on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Uh, another piano work that is extraordinary and, and just kind of encompasses all these aspects, too, is his fantasy, Opus 17. Arguably his greatest work. Uh, there are people who really believe that, that this encompasses uh, Robert Schumann. It's so romantic. It's so passionate. And it was an early work of his. It was written while he was being separated from Clara. They had not yet married. He decided that he was going to write this one single movement work uh, to her. He wrote in a letter to her in 1838, The first movement of this fantasy is the most passionate I have ever composed. It is a profound lament on your account. It was also written to raise money to uh, construct a, a statue of Beethoven. I believe it was in uh, in Bonn. Yes, Bonn. But he eventually expanded the fantasy to be um, a very passionate, but quite a mature work. There's nothing in there that's rambling. Everything is is beautiful, and it flows perfect from from one sense to another. Also, the second movement of that is a march, which uh, brings to to mind the the Band of David, the Luke oh. of David. His music. It's not that he's borrowing or recycling music all the time, but he's. He's able to bring these characters in and out, almost like if you have like a favorite director and they always have a certain kind of character in their films. It's it's like he's able to kind of mold things in and out as needed. Yeah. One thing I will mention, John, is um, what we're seeing in this, this period where he was writing piano music, as you say, was we are starting to see the emergence of music cryptograms. Schumann really loved these. And in fact, what I had read was even in in his last days as he was dying, he was working on music cryptograms even then. And that is where a particular pitch or a note spells out uh, a word like a place or a person's name. Mm -hmm. So he did that with Bach, for example. Oh, okay. And also at this time, we start to see more in terms of what Schumann struggled with for his whole life tragically was was mental illness. In his 20s, you see descriptions of events and symptoms that have been uh, written to probably describe things like a bipolar disorder, a panic disorder. He lost a lot of family at this time, some also to mental illness, which just made his situation even worse. And he was unable to compose during times of mental distress or big bouts of depression. He wrote, Why can I write nothing when life streams over me? Why do I turn to you, my book of life, his diary, when everything is quiet and lifeless? And how much more truly and richly imagination speaks when it comes from life? Some composers use music to to compose themselves out of a depression, if that's something they're struggling with. Schumann seems like that was not something that could work for him. I'm also wondering... He creates this new journal of music that you that you mentioned, and he's writing for it. 
it's quite important. It seems like he that was also an outlet for him to pour himself into maybe when he was unable to musically. Yes, it does. And doesn't it show contrasts in his life? We hear that we hear him have these moments where he's passionate and can can compose very quickly. I mean, I'm thinking of, of the first symphony was composed relatively quickly. And then going into these periods of depression where he was not able to compose, but somehow able to find an outlet of himself in that uh, in that publication. And and write very lucidly, and and um, he wrote. He was he was a very respected music yes. critic. Oh yes, that journal is still in print today. Oh, is it? Oh yeah, it's still in publication. Founded by Robert Schumann, it yes. says at the at the top. Oh, that's that's a good brag. Mm. That brings us to his songs. It's basically ten years later. He's only written for piano. His relationship with Clara is now blossoming, and it's pretty well known that. Clara's father, Friedrich Wieck, remember Schumann's teacher, did not want this marriage to happen. I was unaware until recently how severe this was. They were major chord battles, countersuits by Schumann, terrible rumors spread by Friedrich about Clara in cities that she was going to be performing in, saying she will be disowned. It was very, very serious. And so when you see all that going on, and then finally they're able to get married under protest, I guess, and, and a court ruling. At the same time, he turns to song and writes like 140. Yeah, in one year. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, that was the year of 1840. As you say, it, it was a, it was a stressful time when the two of them were trying to get together. Robert would wait for her every day when she would be coming out of class or coming out of a, of a lesson or something like that. He would wait for her just so he could glimpse her. Yeah. Because sometimes the, the separations were enforced by her father or by law. And so you can imagine they spent years with this and oh, yeah. finally got together. So th- th- there was a, a, a tension leading up to their marriage. But they were in love, and so he poured out his love for her, especially in that first year, with songs that were um, showings of love, of her, of his devotion for her. When I listen to his songs, it feels like this is a just perfect distillation of Schumann's music and him as an artist as a whole, almost like in its most pure form for him, because all of his music, it feels like that he's singing through the instrument, and now he actually has a voice and words to tell this story, all this stuff in literature, you know, in poetry that he loves. It's now coming to life this way, and the piano is so, so sensitive and just weaving in and out. It's like the romantic period also completely distilled down into these songs. I feel like you can hear all the aspects. You know, you're right. I mean, prior to that, maybe he had been writing for um, for an instrument that conveyed his feelings. But here now is a human speaking these the, these words and singing this music that he wrote, a human conveying that. It really is very personal. And it's great for instrumentalists as well. I remember having to study art song or leader, as we call it, by Schumann. And also, I would, I would include it on concerts because it's a great study of phrasing, again, that natural phrase that's like breathing in and out um, that you get with his music mm-hmm. translates well to the instrument and you can figure out, okay, I don't have words. How do I articulate? How do I start this note in a way that either mimics this word or mimics the emotion of that word to to get across? There's all kinds of, it's almost like a little puzzle. Mm. And I think it's, and a lot of musicians, I think have used that to, to improve their own phrasing. I know I have myself just with Schumann's songs. Wonderful. It's amazing that he wrote these songs. It almost seems obvious because he's this hopeless romantic 
Um, but he's also under tremendous stress of trying to get this marriage to happen. Now, Schumann was also influenced by other composers, in a way also uh, Mendelssohn, who was born just a year before, but, but who had gained great traction in the music world. But another influence is Johann Sebastian Bach, right? Yes. He considered, that is Schumann, considered Johann Sebastian Bach to be, quote, his music teacher. Because I don't think Robert Schumann had a lot of uh, strong or structured lessons in composition. Is that your feeling from the research? I was very surprised how little formal training he had yeah. in composition. People spend years in study of orchestration and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And he turns to to Bach um, to do all this kind of on his own. He did. As, as I said, he called Bach his piano teacher and so or his music teacher. So he would uh, study Bach on his own. And then after he and Clara were married, uh, they prepared a marriage diary where they would talk about they, what they did every day. And they would discuss how they would sit down and together study the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Schumann wrote, quote, Bach is my daily bread. I refresh myself in his presence and perpetually draw new ideas from him. So he certainly loved Johann Sebastian Bach, but I think that also speaks to the talent of Robert Schumann. Without a lot of formal training in composition and self-study, he was able to come up with these very inventive, innovative works. And I think it's also intriguing that Schumann, like so many other people who become big leaders or, you know, change makers in different fields in the arts and sciences, when you think, oh, he, he was influenced by Bach, and it's like, oh, he doesn't sound like Bach. He how he's so in a different century and everything but you see these these people who turn to the past centuries in the past and study people like Bach and where you learn every kind of rule and meticulous idea that of the architecture of music and then once you know all that you're able to rip it apart at your own will um, and create something new so it's always you know looking to the past to to push things forward in your own field which for him is composition Yes, and he particularly uh, enjoyed Bach's um, counterpoint. He appreciated that very much, and he would study counterpoint and fugues. And we can see a little bit of that in some of Robert Schumann's music. As you were saying, you can, you can study it and study it, and then it becomes part of your brain and your process, and it maybe has an outlet in your work. And we'll get to his chamber music and symphonies right after this. Classical Breakdown is made possible by Classical WETA. Join us for the music anytime, day or night. To listen live, just go to our website, classicalweta.org, or download our app. It's free in the App Store. It's 1842 now. Schumann is in his, in his early 30s, and he now changes his attention to, to chamber music. First piano, then art song. And then now, this year, especially 1842, really focused on chamber music. It seems like he kind of pours himself all in to, to one genre at a time. He did. So we saw that early on in piano music. He spent a number of years almost primarily on piano. Then after he married Clara in 1840, then he spent a year in more than 140 songs. Now we're talking about chamber music. So um, the year of 1842 is called his year of chamber music because he, um, he wrote a number of works, and they are substantial works. Among them, chief among them, is his piano quintet. Some people call a little miniature a piano concerto because the piano has such an important dominant role in that, but still, it's just a lovely work. It's, it expresses so many moods, but it gives me the impression that Robert Schumann was in a very happy place in his life when he wrote that piano quintet. You can listen to a composer's music and really start to identify those things that you said, mm -hmm. where it's 
he seems in a better place right now. <laughs> and just real quick, we say chamber music all the time. I don't know if we've ever kind of defined it. Basically, if you think of you know a chamber, your living room, uh, you probably can't fit a full symphony orchestra in there. Mm-hmm. You might have a piano, but in between, there's chamber music where it's something like a piano quintet, a string quartet. It's a few musicians, not a whole symphony orchestra. But one work that's fantastic that I think also shows a lot of his characteristics is his piano quartet in E-flat major. There's this beautiful and very challenging Adante, this this third movement. It uses a lot of repetition. You hear that in, in Schumann's music, a lot of repetition. But it doesn't feel like it's just repeating the same thing over and over again. You're always having to do something different. But what he's doing here is repetition in the piano that paints this backdrop. Uh, It's creating the scene in the background for the strings over top. And then he brings it into the foreground. And then in another phrase, he, with the piano, takes away the downbeat of the measure. So beat one, if you have four beats in a measure, beat one is now gone in that Beat one is now a note sustained from the measure before, or it's absent entirely. And this makes it feel a little unstable. It's doesn't. It's not like 20th century unstable, very crazy rhythms, but it gives a sense of floating, uh, a sense of you don't know quite where the beat is. And this is something that is still an influence today. I mean, you think of James Brown and funk. Um, he's teaching Bootsy Collins, you know, basically how to play funk with him. And Bootsy Collins is going all over the place on the bass. Mm-hmm. And James Brown stops him and says, look, I, you can't do that. Long story short, he's basically the one. I need the one. Give me the downbeat. Yeah. I don't care what you do after that, but you got to give me the one because that's the groove. Yeah. And Schumann upsets the groove yeah. um, in this way, in a way that you would not hear from from Mozart or, or um, even Beethoven, early Beethoven. Yeah. No, I think that speaks to his creativity, and and um, which is quite admirable, considering, as you say, he didn't have a, a lot of formal structure in music. Charles Rosen, who is uh, no longer with us, but he was a pianist and a musical scholar and wrote a book about Schumann. And I'm paraphrasing his, him now because I can't find his exact quote, but he said something to the effect that Robert Schumann, more than anybody else of that era, gives us an uneasiness. And also we hear in this, just as you said, Bach was his teacher. And we hear this fugue in the piano quartet that comes, It's basically it sounds like it's straight out of the influence of Bach. Another great chamber music work is his fantasy stucca, fantasy pieces for clarinet and piano. And this is a personal favorite of mine. I've been very blessed to to perform it several times because it works great on tuba. This also feels like his art song. When I play his art song and when I play this, I don't want to say indistinguishable, but they're very, very close. The natural phrasing, the repetition that requires you to convey something different with each iteration. It's just absolutely beautiful. Hmm. He wrote that so well, Ben, for natural expression. Um, You know, we're talking about the Romantic era being, uh, having an emphasis on expression, personal expression that we didn't have earlier. And as you say, you know, now he's able to write in phrases that sound like a human making a personal expression, saying a sentence and stopping and maybe expanding on that and stopping, you know, natural Um, human uh, iterations are coming through in the music. And this piece specifically, which he wrote a little bit later in 1849, 
he puts such intensity into the music and all of his music really but every note when i play schumann it feels like every note is charged with emotion negative or positive there's no in between so when you have something like this these fantasy pieces and other works he wrote for one instrument and piano this is only like 12 minutes long I'm exhausted by the end of it because (laughs) it requires such attention. Even if you have just, oh, I have this quarter note that goes into a whole note, a long sustained note. That note needs to have direction. It may have a strong entrance. Then it needs to come back to let piano come more through with the texture. Then you have to push forward to, to give the note some spin, some direction. And then you have to think about how this note ends, how the release is happening. There's so many things to think about, even when it's just a simple whole note, a long note. He doesn't give you any chance to mentally kind of relax in his music. You know, that's artistry. That is artistry, being able to convey that as you're talking, not just sitting there and playing the notes. That's easy. Mm -hmm. But phrasing them and making them a human um, expression, as you're saying, thinking about, well, you know, how should I attack that first note because what is he trying to say there? That is true artistry. And musicians will tell you that they very much enjoy playing Robert Schumann. Oh, yes. You know, it's challenging. It can be sometimes very, very difficult, but always rewarding and always something to explore. And there are so many moods, too. Not everything is, is um, you know, rapid and uh, and vibrant. He has some, some beautiful, tender, expressive, slow movements, too. Mm, yes. His chamber music is fantastic. I think it falls in line with a lot of the things we talked about with his characteristics, especially leader. We go to symphonies. This is, in my opinion, quite quite extraordinary. He finishes his first symphony. It's um, going back a little bit here. It's 1941. He's like 30 years old. After writing basically just for piano for 10 years, a little bit of song. I think this is his first or like his second ever completed symphonic work. That's that's crazy. It, it is. I mean, in uh, two years prior to that, in 1839, he found Schubert's great symphony. That is the symphony number nine, a manuscript of it. He found it in Schubert's brother's house. Mm-hmm. And Schumann read it and was very taken with it, very impressed. And so he brought it back to Leipzig and he arranged for it to be uh, performed by the Leipzig Avon House with Felix Mendelssohn conducting. Yes. And maybe that was the germ that started have him thinking about writing some symphonic music. Also, Clara, at that point, they were married now, and Clara was encouraging him to write symphonic music. It kind of goes back to what you said before when he would meet Clara and then the relationship would develop. She was instrumental in his music and his success and everything and pushing him to write a symphony when he probably didn't wasn't as driven to, to do that, especially being one of his first symphonic works. Yes, and speaking of Clara's influence, and we were just talking about chamber music, you know, she was the one that would often give the premiere of his chamber music pieces playing the piano part. That's right. There's a great quote from this great conductor, Sir John Elliot Gardner, about Schumann symphonies, he said, As one of the successors to Beethoven, Schumann tried his utmost to make a case for abstract music on a symphonic canvas, to be the equivalent of poetry or the novel, to be a literary equivalent of those works in musical terms. A lot of people said, oh, symphonies or music, it's nice, it's pretty, it's entertaining, but, you know, this is not... This is not like a, a, a classic novel. This is not like a great collection of poetry. It was kind of seen as less than. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to elevate that even more in abstract music or absolute music, as it's often called. Music without a specific story in it, where music is just 
music for music's sake, and he wanted to elevate that to that level of a great novel or a great collection of poetry. And he does it in a way, his symphonies, they feel like chamber music. It's like he has this chamber music that he just kind of blows up to the symphony. Sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it doesn't quite land uh, when you do something like that. Yes, yes. Um, he he revered Beethoven, and he revered Beethoven's symphonies, and he, he, he wanted to keep them revered, and he respected their originality, but he also felt this tension. He felt an obligation to maybe expand that, that idea that, that Beethoven had done and create some new ideas, some new originality, while still respecting Beethoven's work. Um, and as you say, he really believed then the symphony could supplant almost literature as sort of the medium that, you know, that inspires mm. us and that is artistic. But people have complained sometimes about his orchestration. You know, as you say, it's maybe just a blowing up of chamber music. Chamber music, usually there's one instrument that represents a section, one violin, one viola, one cello. He blew it up a little bit in his in his symphonies, maybe not quite as orchestrated as some people say could be done or as well as it could be done. But to come to his defense, it's also been said that um, – the orchestra was changing at that time. Instruments were changing at that time. Instruments had greater dynamic range now. The sonorities were larger. Uh, instrumentation was growing now. The orchestra was much bigger now than it was during, certainly during Mozart's era and even Beethoven's era. So maybe Schumann really just didn't have the, the training to understand how the instruments were changing. That's part of it. There was so much change. And it creates beautiful moments, this idea of blowing up chamber music, like this great extended moment for the cello section in, in the symphony number one. I think part of it is when you look at Mendelssohn and his symphonies, which were immediately popular and loved, mm -hmm. these didn't enjoy quite that immediate success. I think that's because Mendelssohn had a better grasp on orchestration, and he was able to grab the audience immediately with just great lines and melodies that you can remember and hum afterwards in um, on your way home from a concert. Schumann's a little more esoteric. Yes, and, and Mendelssohn was a little more conservative in how he constructed things. We're mm -hmm. still look, looking back yeah. a little bit more to classicism. Some people have said of Mendelssohn that he's the, the romantic classicist mm. or the, the classical romanticist. Um, yeah, he was able to sort of straddle both things, and so that was acceptable. That was palatable to audiences. But as you say, Schumann challenged the ideas a little bit more. And his third symphony, which is, I think, one of his most, the most performed out of out of all of them. It's actually his last one. There are four, but uh, the fourth one was one that was written earlier, published later. Mm -hmm. So the third one, his final one that he wrote in 1851, it's so exciting. It's so rich. And what he kind of lacks in sometimes choosing the instruments that may fit better for the orchestration, he makes up with the richness and the texture we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Instead of just strawberries, we're adding all kinds of spices and sugar and, and cream and all that. Mm -hmm. He does that here with the horns, especially. The end is absolutely triumphant. And Schumann, such a hopeless romantic, so deeply emotional. And so he chooses instruments that we think we tend to be fall in that line. That is cello and also the horn section. That falls right in line and he's able to exploit that um, to his advantage. He loves horns, and as you say, he wrote that piece for, uh, for is it four horns, I guess, in orchestra that I understand yes. is very difficult to play. Oh, yes. Yeah, but he definitely loved the horns. But but I hear in that Rhenish symphony, the symphony number three, a joy, almost the same sort of joy that I hear in the piano quintet. 
Mm. He had just started this uh, this service now in the city of Dusseldorf. They moved there. He was hopeful. He was optimistic. And you could hear it coming through. And, of course, he was inspired by the beautiful Cologne Cathedral. As you say, that was his final symphony, although not published as his final. But things went a little bit downhill for him around that time. Now getting into his 40s, right? Yeah. And these are the final years of his life. Very unfortunately, in 1854, a few years after this, he did try to take his own life. And he was then, how they word it, he was institutionalized, put into, into hospital where he would remain and then um, died two years later in 1856. A key moment, though, right before all of this happens, just months, he meets Johannes Brahms, or Brahms just shows up at their doorstep. And Clara and Robert are immediately taken. They recognize this guy's young, but he's a genius. There's something going on here. And while Schumann is in the hospital, it is Brahms who is able to go in and meet with Schumann talk with him, help with like, you know, correspondence or anything that needed to be done. Reasoning being, I guess the doctors said when Clara had come in or had written a letter, Schumann completely lost it, um, agitated, just be, you know, mentally just kind of collapsed. And so she wasn't able or she wasn't allowed to see him Mm -hmm. until basically right when he died. Yeah, he was having some psychotic episodes toward yeah. the end in which he would think that Clara was the demon or a devil or something. Mm-hmm. And and so, yes, the doctors felt that that would agitate him too much. But talking about how meeting the Wieck family when, when Robert was young, in 20 years old, was fateful for him because he met Clara and she's the one that inspired him so so much during his life. Well, you can imagine it was another fateful episode when standing at the door was this young 20-year-old Johannes Brahms that no one had ever heard of except Josef Joachim, who was a violinist and who introduced Brahms to the Schumann family. The Schumanns took him in. Brahms lived there for a couple of weeks and became a member of the family. And they they, they promoted his music. They loved his music. Clara played music of Brahms even after Schumann's death. And I think, as you say, Schumann felt probably comforted in his final years when he was institutionalized seeing Johannes Brahms. It's so fortuitous. It's just months. And of course, back in the day, I mean, they didn't just get on a plane or go on a train and go to New York and come back in the same day. I mean, it takes a long time to get from one place to the other. So when he meets Schumann in these final months before he's um, institutionalized, it's very fortuitous because when you listen to Schumann's symphonies, they're fantastic, but they did not get the recognition at the time that they have today. It really feels like it is Brahms who picked up the torch from Schumann and carried it over with his four symphonies that have extraordinary orchestration, some of the greatest example of orchestration in symphonies of the 19th century from Schumann. And I think you can hear all kinds of Schumann in his music as well. Brahms, of course, also an emotional and funny character at times, from what I've read. Yes. Brahms didn't go so much into these little character pieces that Schumann did, like we were talking about, like Carnival and Papillon. Mm -hmm. and that's Brahms didn't do too much of that. He was a little more conservative in his structures. But you can definitely hear the torch being passed from Robert Schumann to Johannes Brahms. And that is a legacy of of Schumann. And he was a great influence on composers immediately like like Brahms. But then also later when he gained even more recognition with composers like Bernstein, who just love um, the music of Schumann and really elevated his music. Gustav Mahler was also a huge yes, fan. Yes, Mahler, that's it. Mm-hmm. And, oh, Mauer, that's a whole other topic of symphonies. <laughs> so that is the life and, and music in a nutshell of Schumann. There's much more, 
um, in terms of some performances you can watch on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Very compartmentalized, right? Piano, then song. Now I'm doing chamber music. Now I'm doing symphonies. He lived long enough to, to give us this, and it's thankfully we have this. Yeah, wonderful legacy. And now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. What do we have, Linda? Alaska ALS guy gave us five stars, and he said, sure glad Thanksgiving weekend I stumbled into your podcast. Bravo. Five stars. And if I could give 10, I would. Well, thank you so much, Alaska ALS guy. You know what would make 10 stars, Linda? Hmm? Five stars from Alaska ALS guy and five stars from someone else. So if you want to leave a review, you can do that in your podcast app, and maybe we'll read it. And you can also... Send us listener questions or comments to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. Do you have anything else for Schumann, Linda? Just a big, big thanks to the Schumann family for enriching our lives. ¶¶